The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. So here's our first COVID-related mini-sode, Mia. I guess I feel like we were kind of doing these podcasts and interviewing people. It's really interesting. Some of it was more relevant to our current state or not, but I just feel also the need to talk to you about what's going on and some of the things that are really focused on the state of the world and our work right now. So I'm glad we're getting, getting the chance to do it. I'm glad we are too. And it's funny because you and I are taking sort of the, this little chunk out of our day. I wish we could take a bigger chunk mm-hmm. out of our day to talk about it. And I'm really glad that we're able to do that because we move so quickly. And, you know, you and I are working in a field where we're trying to respond to people who have really dire needs around education. And so just being able to step back and reflect a little bit with you is really nice. Yeah, I was looking forward to it all week. So I'm glad that we're here. Although <laughs> your recommended article <laughs> that we kind of use as a, as a conversation topic, What Happened to American Childhood by Kate Julian is focused on anxiety. And I have to say, it didn't help me ramp down my weekly anxiety. No, I'm sure it didn't. And also after I read it, I was like, oh, that's what went wrong. <laughs> Wait, how so? What went wrong with you or in parenting? No, you can see it. I mean, essentially it's describing childhood anxiety, but as a part of a cycle of parents' anxiety being reflected on their children's and probably their parents' anxiety having been reflected upon them. And when I thought about that, I could point to my own childhood. I could point to times when my son, who is now 26, was young. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, I did some of those things. Yeah. Well, I, think <laughs> I made some of those accommodations. Yep. <laughs> it seemed, you know, what really kind of spurred that author to go deeper is the current state of the world. So right. since this is our first, and I think we've talked about this a little bit in some other episodes, but since it's our first COVID-related mini-sode, maybe we should just level set for what our lives are right now, <laughs> what we are right. focusing on and doing and trying to maintain in our homes. Sure. So my husband and I, early, early on in the pandemic, when we started hearing that there were problems for seniors in nursing homes or other senior communities, and that there were special, not just special risks because people are older, but because of the fact that they live close together and people come in and out of contact with them that the virus was spreading quickly. And as soon as I heard about that, I said, okay, we've got to get our moms out of where they're living. We got them and brought them to our home and they're living with us. So we have two 80-year-old widows (laughs) living with us, as well as my 26-year-old son and his girlfriend who are just finishing up their first year of law school because Mm. their school went online about five weeks ago. So we have all been together with the moms for eight weeks and with my son for five weeks. So that's more people than I've been living with for a very long time in one Mm -hmm. place. But how are you doing? What's your kind of general feeling about your current situation? Yeah. I think like many people, I have been through a series of feelings. Certainly at first it was the anger and the disappointment and frustrations. And then I think I've kind of settled into acceptance and thinking, okay, this is the way it's going to be for a while. And really the overarching sentiment that I feel every day 
is gratitude. And I'm so, I feel so lucky that I have the moms with us and that they're healthy and that we have a place where they can be safe and comfortable and that my son is here too. And so I think grateful. And then I feel a little weird because we can't make plans. Right. That's Hmm. like the weirdest thing. I'm a big planner and nope, no plans. That's it. Working. We're just living, living every day the same. (laughs) Yeah. Try to stay the same. Well, I'm sort of, I guess, on the opposite end of that because, you know, I have young children. My daughter is four and my son is six and I am married to a first responder. So we are at home, but we are exposed. Right. <laughs> We've made the decision to not kind of separate or isolate the children or, or myself from that situation. It seems hard. Our schedules are completely opposite. So that's also quite difficult. So basically, it's sort of all of the challenges of managing that schedule because of the remote learning that my Mm -hmm. kindergartner in particular is supposed to be doing. I just feel heightened. And at the same time, I feel like I'm going through it. And I'm in such a privileged situation to be able to work from home to do the work that I do that feels like it's actually helping during this time. But I also acknowledge for myself that I'm doing all this and I'm still exposed, like my family's still exposed. And that's a rough thing to be just constantly aware of. So, I mean, we're doing fine. We will be doing fine and we're doing all the things we can do to stay safe. I feel very isolated from the rest of my family because I'm a transplant to Seattle. I do feel like it's nerve wracking to be so far away from the rest of my loved ones, especially my grandparents. So that's another thing that I'm thinking a lot about that, you know, there's not a way for me to help or see them. And even if there were because of the the work of my spouse, I couldn't. So anyway, that's kind of an overview. And my general feeling about it is I would say I am a bit numb, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's been a for the last definitely the last couple of weeks. I I mean, I've had some I've been really irritable, but otherwise, Mm -hmm. (laughs) pretty numb to, to things and just trying to go through the motions. Yeah, you and I are on this kind of opposite end of the spectrum caretaking, right? You know, you with younger children and me with older parents. You know, in the U.S., it's not as common to have multiple generations living in the home anymore. And it certainly wasn't in our plan that that was going to be the case. And so it's been a real gift to have this time with them. And also really interesting to have that whole narrative flipped around now you're the caretaker for your parents and helping them with things that are really hard for them to ask for help Yeah, around. Yeah. I can imagine that. Mm-hmm. Also today, I think you were generous in saying, why don't we first kind of talk about <laughs> a situation that's more relevant for, for Andrea, which we read that article in the Atlantic about connections between parenting behavior and childhood anxiety. And, and it was such an interesting article. It's a really long read, but I think, you know, you were right on recommending it during this time. You were like, read it because I have to talk to you about it. And then I read it <laughs> more recently. And I have all these questions and notes and things uh, where I was like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, should I worry about that? And and so it did increase my own parenting anxiety. (laughs) Right. But I think there were good points in there. There There's some things that I feel a little strange about, like the concept of fragility and Uh that children are more fragile now. And I also am curious what you think about, is it more stressful now? Is the world more stressful and taxing for kids? Because I don't know. In social media and technology, the presence of stressful information is more ubiquitous. That's right. They are exposed to adult information 
or information that in previous generations may not have been shared with children, either intentionally or accidentally. (laughs) Now there's just so much and there's only so much processing their little brains can do with that, Mm -hmm. right? It's more than, than generally they can handle. And I don't know that we haven't gotten so in some ways immune to it as adults that we're not recognizing it Mm -hmm. for the kids. Do I think it's more stressful? Certainly it's hard to say that it isn't given the situation right now. Right. I mean, we're at this unique point in time where definitely this is unprecedented Mm -hmm. in our lifetime, but you know what it made me do? (laughs) You're going to, maybe because you know me so well and we've done this, you're not going to be surprised by this. I went through a timeline of like my childhood and starting in the eighties. And I was like, I feel like some pretty terrible things happened and I had a lot of awareness of them. Right. (laughs) And so I was sort of looking at like cold war end times, Columbia shuttle, challenger shuttle, nine 11, Chernobyl, (laughs) oil spills. When I was a young grade schooler, we had someone come talk to us about how in 50 years we would be completely depleted of natural resources in school, you know, we had a whole week long session on conservation. And I remember thinking, well, if that happens in 50 years, what am I even doing? (laughs) And I know a lot of kids are saying that now around climate change. I was thinking about the Unabomber and how there was coverage of Dahmer. I saw coverage of the Jeffrey Dahmer trial. And I don't remember what age I was, but I feel like I was pretty young. (laughs) Right. Well, I grew up in Seattle just after the Ted Bundy sort of situation. And so kind of same thing, like, even though it was a little bit before my time, there was still this, in the city, this kind of overriding sense that you're just not safe, especially as a young female. Well, I think also about, you know, I I say this is unprecedented, but because it's extended, the threat is somewhat invisible. There's that. But Mm -hmm. also I remember all of the information hitting me as a six and seven-year-old about HIV and AIDS Mm -hmm. and how incorrect a lot of that. I mean, not that this information is incorrect, but you know what I mean? The fear around it was very real for people and is still for some. And I was sort of like in that mode of it's almost like I don't want to compare trauma, and, right. but, but the data is real. There are increases in anxiety. There are increases in suicide. Suicide is like, what, number two leading cause of death for yeah. 15 to 25-year-olds or something. So all right. of that is real. So maybe it's just pointless to even talk about if it was Well, and, you know, there. and kind of getting back to the article, depending on the age, kids can be very young and how they're processing information that is terrible for adults can vary, right? Mm-hmm. But- it is so much influenced by how the adults in their lives are also dealing with it. How the adults talk about it and their own anxiety around it is as much, if not more important than the actual thing itself. Right. So whether or not it's true that there's more stress in their lives, we know now that there's such a clear connection between how they experience that stress. And if they are prone to developing anxiety disorders and parents, not that parents are to blame, but that parenting styles and family mental health history matter a lot. Right. And so I did, when I was reading the article and thinking back about when my son was young and thinking about how I did have, there was a time in my early thirties where I was very anxious with panic attacks and the the whole business. And I'm not sure at the time I thought about how much that might've impacted my child because I'm sure that I thought on the outside, I'm just normal mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just going to feel all this on the inside. (laughs) But certainly there was something about me wanting to accommodate and make things not like that for him that really resonated with me in the article about parents doing that, trying to make sure that their own kids don't suffer the anxiety. 
I feel that. And they're doing the opposite. <laughs> right. I try to strike a balance because I also, I actually feel the opposite about some of the accommodating behaviors. Like I totally see how when you accommodate, things go faster. But sometimes it's like, I don't have the time to accommodate. You know what I mean? Like something right. in my brain does say, oh no, I can't do this every day. So I've got to stop it now and take that short-term pain. Would you call yourself an anxious person? Do you feel like somebody who experiences anxiety more or less than others? I think fundamentally I am, but I have learned a lot of strategies over mm -hmm. the years. Yeah. So I would not say that I am now. Of course, it's better for kids if parents know strategies when they're young. But I think sometimes when we read these articles, you think, oh my gosh, I am going to screw up my kids for life yeah. if I don't get a handle on this. You like know, that, here's one, that one time I didn't make them <laughs> eat the dinner. Or I don't know, I let them eat chicken nuggets too much or whatever. Mm -hmm. It just, I think that you have to take it all with a grain of salt, that there are so many other ways to mitigate besides not accommodating, right? Providing a very loving environment is another way to mitigate, right? Yeah. So I think that maybe it's helpful to talk about some of the signs that children may be experiencing anxiety and also probably then what the article sort of calls out as some of the things that might enable anxiety. Mm -hmm. This accommodating piece, there can be a fine line between giving your kids freedom and that's right, and using kind of appropriate discipline practices and not enabling some of the fears or trying to shelter them from any discomfort. That's right. I think the other side of that, you don't want to be super accommodating because we know that that does not help provide the skills, the resiliency skills that we want kids to develop over time. But we don't want to mistake that for harsh parenting being positive. Right. There's tons of research. Our colleague Tia could yeah. <laughs> could tell us more about it. But, you know, there's you can be strict and loving and that's sort of a good place to be. But just strict. You don't want to say, well, I'm not going to ever accommodate my kids. And that's that life's hard and too bad for you. Yeah, I think that the key takeaway from it, I really liked the part of the article where they talked about how effective interventions with parents were that, yeah. you know, kids who refused to go through. So the article says that, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy are really effective, but even more effective was when the parents of children with diagnosed anxiety disorders underwent therapy and got support around their own parenting techniques, that that was more sustainable and more effective and was actually better because it could help the kids who were refusing to participate in therapy. So I thought that was a really interesting dynamic. And it, immediately I was like, well, how do parents just get really good access to all this? Because a lot of parents can't just go to therapy with this very specialized parenting approach, right? right? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, there's <laughs> only so much book reading you can do. You know, I'm sure that there are workshops and other kinds of parent education opportunities for people. But those are hard and people, it's hard for people to have time to do them. They're often expensive. In some cases, if you think about what's going on now, who has time to do that now? They're right. just trying to get kids to like do the math. So what are some things we might say just during this period of time where anxieties across the board are probably heightened for parents and for kids? Like what are some things that make a difference, do you think? I think one thing, this is maybe diverging a little bit from your question, but I talk to a lot of friends, like one of my things that keeps me sort of sane is I do a lot of Zoom social hours with mm -hmm. friends. Every night I do them. And I have friends with kids of a variety of ages. And the ones who have younger kids who are trying to teach them at home are just across the board going nuts. 
and it is so stressful for them and it is so stressful for the whole family. And I think I wish there was some really concise bit of wisdom that I could pass on, but mostly I just keep trying to say they're going to be okay. You know, if you don't understand Singapore math, it's okay. If the school isn't doing things exactly how you want, or they're giving them too much work or not enough work, it's just, it's okay. Mm -hmm. If they play Minecraft, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that totally. And I think this focusing on your own and your family's mental wellness should be the top priority. But I myself was a very anxious child and I was very internalizing. So I don't Mm. think it was, it came out in a variety of ways. I did refuse to go to school. I had to be pulled bodily out of the car sometimes to be taken into the school. And I had physical, like I had headaches. I had all these things that I were really related to some deep anxiety I had about being in school and being with other children. I think now I, you know, I see one of my kids has stomach aches whenever we talk about Mm. the remote schoolwork and was having stomach aches going to school. And that's a pretty common sign of anxiety. And didn't mean I didn't make him go to school. Right. Right. But I did investigate what things might be happening at school that contributed to that anxiety. So I think sort of like thinking about how that can manifest as physical, it can manifest as tantrums and it's different. The temperament really matters. That was another thing in the article. And I have one child who's very externalizing and one that's very internalizing. And the externalizer, this article made me realize I accommodate more because it is anxiety producing for me to deal with those tantrums. Like I just, I start to fear them. So I was like, I'm going to have to take some exposure therapy myself and just power through those tantrums, manage my own anxiety about, you know, the potential that she'll have those. Right. Right. There's a lot of self-management involved in managing the anxiety your kids might feel. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think another thing, I was reading another article about how to help your children be more resilient And there were some tips about teaching them problem-solving strategies, as opposed to saying kids get really nervous sometimes about going to the doctor, like, am I going to get a shot? You know, as a parent, a lot of people will just want to accommodate kids in the moment and say, oh no, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. But honestly, the research bears out that it's better to say, I just don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about what's going to happen if you do. How would you deal with it if that does happen? If a mistake happens, as opposed to asking why, like, let's say Mm -hmm. something gets broken instead of saying, why, why did you let that get broken? Why did that happen? Why? It's more of like, how question, how are we going to fix that now? What are we going to do to, to fix this going forward and Mm -hmm. teaching them some skills around moving forward, working things out so that Mm -hmm. they have that competency as opposed to sort of living in that ruminating about why it happened or Mm -hmm. if it's going to happen. Yeah. I find that one of the ways that some anxiety for my older child manifests is in sort of just really trying to understand deeply. So the why questions can come in a lot. Like for instance, the most recent thing was wanting to look at the structure of viruses. Mm. Like he really wanted to understand what they look like, how they work, are they alive or not? Can they see, can they, you know, like, is there intention behind what's happening? And he's very interested, but also I know it's because he's thinking a lot about (laughs) the effects of the current viral pandemic. So he, so he's manifesting that in questions. And I have this practice of, I try really hard not to lie to my kids Mm -hmm. and, and not to, I don't, make things sound like the worst. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I can say somebody in our family might catch that virus. And if that happens, just like 
with anything else that happens in our family. We're going to come up with a plan to deal with it together. We're going to do the best we can to take care of each other. You know what I mean? So I just kind of just say, yeah, that's a possibility because he also asked those questions about death. And I feel like in the long run, I don't want that. I don't want something to have happened. And I told him it wouldn't. And then he not trust me, never again, trust any techniques I might give him to deal with a really emotional situation. So when we talk about death, I say, yeah, everything that is alive dies. That's something that happens. Um, But we humans live a long time. That's also true. You know what I mean? Like on average, human beings have a really long lifespan. That's a lot of birthdays. Right. We don't have to think of what's going to happen then. We can think about things that make us feel good right now. You know, it's kind of like, Mm -hmm. what are some things you can do to deal with that discomfort in the moment if it becomes too much for you? So it's really, yeah, about building those resilient skills and helping to carry those forward, really. What role do you think kindness plays in all of this? It's I feel like there's there's such a lack of kindness for parents in some cases and yeah. educators. <laughs> but I've seen more of yeah. that in the like in the response. People are like, oh yeah, this is really hard. But what do you yeah. think kindness where does kindness come in when you have well, an anxious child? A couple of ways. As parents, we want to be kind to ourselves. It's a really hard job. And I think people second guess themselves all the time and have a lot of fears around not doing it right a lot of guilt around not being able to do it right, even if they want to and don't feel like they are. So I think that they're practicing self-kindness, self-compassion is really important. I think this probably falls more under a category of patience Mm -hmm. (laughs) when it comes to being with children, but trying to remember what it was like best you can to be a little person and to not understand things Mm -hmm. and trying to extend some compassion and, and kindness to them when you, you can see they're really struggling. They're not having behaviors to make you mad. Right. Even if their intention is to make you mad, it's actually about needing a reaction or attention yeah. of some sort, right? Yeah. So I think that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm taking away from all this that kindness and compassion are not accommodation. And I think that can that can be really hard to understand as a parent. And what you just said about having empathy for them. I know myself as a parent, something that happened as soon as I had a baby was I couldn't, for instance, watch movies where babies were stolen or got hurt. Like I suddenly had this really like emotional overdrive kind of thing happening. And and it sort of followed them. Like now if I watch a movie and there's a kid that's about the age of one of my kids and something happens to them, I'm not okay. And it's like, and I feel like I should be like, I know it's a movie, but it's, I have an emotional response. And I also feel like, you know, for me, I say this a lot to my spouse who has a different perspective. I think it sounds like the worst thing in the world to be a kid. Like when I, like you have no power, you have, you're just a raw nerve a lot of the time. Like you just, so I have a lot of empathy and I don't want them to feel that like what I imagine, like how intense that feels, I often don't want them to feel that way. But that's not a kindness, like intense feelings are part of being human and managing through those feelings are necessary skills that they have to acquire. So that's my kind of end point of the article. I've got to do that for myself and be aware of it. Yeah. So Andrea, what are you doing this week? to practice kindness. Is there anything that you're bringing some intentionality to your, Mm. to your days or anything that you've been thinking about? Well, it's a great question. You know, I would say that one of the things that has been happening that we're trying to participate in for our neighborhood is just like little tokens to let people know you're thinking about them. So the kids are like painting rocks and then we go 
leave those on people's doorsteps. One of my daughter's friend just dropped off a, an egg, an Easter egg she decorated the other day. And so I think these like tokens of we're here still, we care about you still is something that we're just trying to make a regular practice. That's really nice. That's one thing. What about you? A couple things. We do a weekly run to the grocery store. And when I say we, I mean, my husband <laughs> makes a weekly run to the grocery store, but we are picking up extra food and just making that part of the loop on his way home. He just oh, drops nice. off food at the food bank. And then just sort of in our own home, living with your 80 year old parent <laughs> gives you an interesting window into your future. <laughs> yeah, And so it's, I do try very intentionally every day to think about things that I could do for them that would be nice because as much as it's not easy to be a kid, oh man, yeah, it is not easy to be 80. So I try to think about something to do for them. Each day. I saw a tweet the other day that I really liked. It was basically like, if you ever wanted all of your personality flaws to manifest in human form, have a kid. Yeah. So it's sort of living between this, oh, that's something that's really intrinsic to me. And maybe I had all these things in my past that I thought contributed to it, but some part of it was just me. And I see that in these children and you have this like, is this my future? What parts of those things <laughs> that I had from my parent are, are going to become my 80 year old self? Yeah. So we'll yeah. be on the whole spectrum here. Yeah. Well, I have to get back to this reality. <laughs> Right I know. Now. I think we have another meeting coming up. Yeah, we here, do. But thanks for suggesting the article. Let's talk more about yeah. supporting those who are at different stages of life, like yeah. the moms that are living in your home soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.